You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 52, and I'm Brandon. And I'm Allison. And we have some catching up to do with the interview uh, last week. And uh, well, for one, it's good to have you back. Yeah, thanks. I feel a lot better. I think I just caught whatever was going around. I think that there's just a cold going around San Diego County, so... Um, just needed a little night to kind of catch up on some sleep and some other things. So I'm sorry I missed it, but I listened to the podcast and well, you better um, have. I did, and Tara, that was really interesting. Tara's whole perspective of uh, like uh, fermentation and spreading it and trying to like get more kids involved and all kinds of stuff. Like that's that's who we need to be targeting. Oh yeah, it's definitely got me excited and. And wanting to pursue more of that just locally as well as is getting into working with kids and and figuring out that kind of stuff with uh, it's just it was it's a good interview if you haven't listened to it yet go back to last week's episode fifty one and definitely listen to Tara's interview with uh, fermentation on wheels um, but we actually do have quite a few things that I've been running into lately and I don't know if first if have you been with you having not been a little under the weather or otherwise have you been doing much fermentation lately. No, I haven't. Um, just because, um, just like pr- things that are going on in my personal life that are not, not, um, fermentation related, but we're in the process of moving to a new house and that is a whole headache in itself and like packing. And, um, so I haven't really done any fermentation. Um, I'm still, you know, growing my, um, starter culture for my sourdough and I've been giving it away like a mad lady. Um, cause I have so much of it now. Um, and I have a friend from, um, that I gave it to. And so she used it, I think the first time this weekend, she, she, <clears throat> I only gave her about a cup of it and told her to grow it up herself for a few days and kind of get acclimated to her, um, house and her, the temperature that's in, uh, you know, the ambient temperature around her house. So I think this was the first, weekend or the first few days where she's actually been able to use it, um, to bake bread. So I, I haven't heard anything from her and I'm going to assume it's okay because, you know, no news is good news sometimes. Um, but I'll, I, I'm going to go see her tomorrow. So I'm really excited to hear what she has to say about it. She's never done uh, sourdough before. No, she, um, she hasn't, she's been really interested in food and she's been kind of, you know, wanting to make that step into um, making her own yogurt and making her own bread and doing a lot of those types of fermentations, um, but doesn't know much about the science behind it and doesn't really know where to go to get all of those cultures. So when she told me that, I just, you know, have all of the sourdough coming out of my ears and stuff that I just told her like, hey, it's not a problem here. Just have some of this and we'll see how it goes and if it dies and or whatever happens to it, it's not a big deal. I can give you more and we'll just keep doing it until you get the hang of it. And, um, she's really excited about it. That's awesome. That's, uh, yeah. that's good. You're, you're, you're out there converting lots of people. Yeah. And, um, I bought some milk today at the grocery store because I was going to make some kefir, but then, uh, you know, time kind of slipped through me today and I didn't have a chance to start it, but, um, you know, I have the milk, I have everything I need. I just have to take the hour or so to get everything ready and just do it. So, so you have, uh, you have, uh, kefir grains or do they dehydrated or, or fresh? Um, they're dehydrated. So, um, 
I've never used them. They were given to me. So I, that is a whole new world to me and I'm not quite sure what to do. So that's why I haven't just like dived in and just taken five to 10 minutes to start everything. I'm, I want to sit down and think about the process and what I need to do. So when I do do it, it's really easy and everything's laid out for me and clean and I know what to expect instead of just, there's no need to overthink it. Oh, I know, but I overthink everything. So (laughs) I can't help it. Um, what about you? What's going on in your kitchen? Well, I have a a few things going right now. I'm trying to think what the, I had, Oh, one that, uh, tempoyak is one that I am going to, or that I'm trying for the first time. We talked about durian Mm-hmm. fruit a few episodes back and I picked some up at the local uh, Chinese grocery store and I am going to try fermenting it because uh, it's 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 common in Philippines and Malaysia. I think those are the two main areas where tempoyak is, is made and I have it incubating at about 90 degrees with about 2% salt, 2 to 3% salt. And I'm going to see how it turns out. I don't, I, I cut this one open. I know we were talking about how the fruit smells, different things like that. I cut it open and it still didn't smell to me. Just like years ago, the last time I'd had it over in Southeast Asia, it didn't smell then. It doesn't smell now to me. I could get a little bit more of a hint of trying to really pay attention to the smell. I could s- sort of see where people wouldn't like it. And again, there's different variety varieties. So there are some that smell better than others probably, but I'm almost convinced now and I don't have any evidence whatsoever to back it up, but I really think that it's kind of like a, a gene or a receptor or something in different individuals that go either way. Because I know for things like what is, oh, what's that C, uh, sp- uh, not spice, but like kind of like parsley, but it's. Uh, like sea cucumber? Maybe that I'm throwing cucumber. that out there. I don't Just know. <laughs> starts with a C. Um, uh, no, I was thinking more something oh. that almost looks like parsley. Um, oh, and, um, I thought you literally meant like C, like S E A. Oh, no, like no, no. Ocean. No, C as in the letter C. What oh. is that? Uh, it's, it starts with a C. It's it, cilantro. Cilantro. Yeah. Cilantro is something I cannot stand. Really? Do you think it tastes like soap? That's one way you or, could say it. Yeah. Okay. Nicely. I mean, yeah, it's, I think it's a little different than that, but some people say that, that durian smells like gasoline and I could almost barely see that, but uh, that was really a stretch for me. So, I mean, the soap and gasoline, I think those are kind of like I, concepts to get close, but I can't, I just, I really don't like anything that has it at, at a, there, there's a threshold. I mean, at a certain point, I, if it's, there's not enough in say a salsa or something, I can't really taste it, but anything that is meant to have a cilantro taste, I can't stand it. And it's, and as far as I understand, and, and I guess I haven't looked into it that very deeply either that, that there, there are people do have either a receptor for it or not. And the same with being able to smell, um, in a person's urine, whether or not asparagus has a urine altering aroma to it or not. And some people can smell it. Some people don't, their urine doesn't get altered. Um, my, uh, asparagus does affect my urine. I'll just say that. So like I have that, I have the sensitivity to, uh, cilantro, but then when it comes to durian, it doesn't smell to me. That's weird that you're a weirdo. Um, on all accounts, 
Well, that's too bad that you don't or you don't like the taste of cilantro, but I because I personally love it. But I, again, it is, you know, everyone has different. What's that saying? Different, different strokes for different folks. And everyone has different ways of sensing things and smelling things. And it's really interesting science. I, it's a whole science in itself. Uh, sense, sensory science. Um, still haven't smelled durian myself. Um, so I can't contribute to if it does smell bad or does not smell bad. Um, every time I see it in the grocery store, it's in the freezer section. So haven't had the opportunity to smell how gross or not gross it actually is to me. That's weird that yours is in the freezer section too. I mean, I guess every shop would be different, but this was, as I've seen at many different Asian grocery stores, uh, this, this one is a Chinese specific grocery store, but they just have it right in the, right in the, the, the refrigerated open section. Mm -hmm. So like a regular grocery store, like how it's like open, but it's still kind of cooler. That's where it's at for me. So it's like not hidden. It's not trying to keep the smell covered up, but that's the other thing I was trying to look up, but I couldn't find any definitive answers as to whether or not imported durian would have less of a smell than, than in Southeast Asia or elsewhere. Like uh, as in like, because I mean, otherwise if it smells as bad as people think it does, then I would think that it's not going to be something that would be great to be the importer of like that, that cargo crate would be just reeking then. Yeah. That'd be awful. That'd be a terrible job. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. That That is an interesting question. I've never really thought about it that way. But I mean, if you think about it, lots of different fruits taste different, like or l different variety or a variety of grapes will taste different from one region of the U.S. to a different region of the U.S. So I'm sure that there is some sort of difference in smell potency for durian in different areas of the world, wherever it's grown. Um and maybe some of it like evaporates in the air when it's really volatile when it makes its way over here to the U.S. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it seems very likely. But at the same time, I do remember trying it, at least in Indonesia. But I, I'm almost certain I tried it in Thailand, too. But it just doesn't have I don't have any memories other than amazing creaminess and custard like um, flavors. And, and it's just that soft, gooey fruit. It's just. Hmm. Great. I mean, a little stringy, but it's like a nice custardy kind of fruit. And hmm. so fermenting it is going to break down some of those. It should break down some of the stringiness and it should be even more custard like. And it is supposed to be done in about a week or so at now I was reading a, a, a scientific journal article that was studying. I forget what it was studying about it, but I was I was going off of their standards and they said, leave it at ambient temperatures, but ambient temperatures in Wisconsin in the winter are definitely not the same as Southeast Asia. So I have it incubated and so I can speed it up because I don't know yeah. if something like this, this tropical fruit, if I would be getting the same thing, if I let it stretch out for a long period of time, since it's not something that ever was done in more temperate climates. I mean, so it should go really well with fish or other meats with a little bit of uh, chili spice as well, uh, like peppers along with it. So some fermented peppers along with, with this tempoyak, this fermented durian is supposed to go really well with, with certain meats. Hmm. Well, keep us updated on that. I'd like to know if the, how the fermentation goes and what it tastes like. 
of course, but also the smell. I mean, I don't, I'm just fascinated that this is supposed to smell so bad and um, it, I'm just fascinated by it. But if you do a little bit of looking online, you will also see that it does seem to be, that's where I'm leaning towards. It's got to be people have different receptors um, for it, it because be. because there is a dividing line. I'll, it seems like a large majority of people do not like it, but that like that they talk about like being repulsed by it and it's being gross and different things like that. But there are plenty of other people in forums and, and blog comments that refer to it being delicious and they have no idea what people are talking about. And I tried <laughs> well, I mean, really hard. I tried really hard and I could barely maybe see it. Like what people are talking about and, and like the, the fruit, like the skin afterwards, like the discarded stuff that was in the trash. I mean, I could start to maybe see that, but then things start to like after they've been in the trash for a day or something like in a closed, closed thing. I mean, I, I should have composted it, but it was just like, I didn't, my compost bin wasn't large enough and it's cold outside. So I apologize for not, for not recycling it into the, into the earth. But, but I didn't then notice I got the, the experience of being able to put it into a, a closed container and it does have a scent after a day in the in a in a trash bag yeah well i think anything kind of has a smell a rotten smell from when it's in the trash can it's just maybe that's just my preconceived notion of what the trash can is supposed to smell like but anyway um there you know you if you just i just googled durian fruit again and there's so many different things that are made of it made out of it like ice cream and gelato uh, chips like potato style chips. Oh yeah. Um, all kinds of stuff. Someone made like a durian flavored Yule log. Um, I'm going to assume for the holidays. Um, so it must not be that repulsive. Um, and you, you're probably right. There's probably some sort of receptor that some people have that makes it smell terrible. And probably a majority of people have that. And then other people like yourself can't smell it. Or don't smell that same, quote, putrid, sweaty socks smell that people associate it with. Which is kind of sad. Like, I mean, it. well, then to a certain extent, it's not. Because like something like cilantro, I, would, I might actually be able to enjoy some of the, the flavors of it if it wasn't for the, as you're calling, soapiness aspect to it. That just is, just destroys the flavor of whatever it's in. And so like, maybe it would be nice to be able to experience that kind of like I'm able to experience the durian, but at the same time, I feel like I'm missing out on something too, because you know, I'm not, I'm not getting to, uh, to smell what someone else is able to perceive. You know, it's like the, the super tasters that can taste all these things. It's like a, it's a, a, a curse and a, a blessing maybe, or whatever, however a person wants to put it. I mean, it's like, it's interesting to be able to taste more, but at the same time, sometimes it's good to just miss out. Um, but I don't like missing out. So, um. If I'm missing out, I guess I'm going to at least enjoy it and then fer- and ferment it. And then if I like fermenting it, the only thing is, is durian is, ex- is not the cheapest fruit. Um, and it's not even that cheap in Southeast Asia. I, I was surprised. I never really paid too much attention, but I guess it's pretty ex- like the, the fresh fruit is, is also expensive over there, but they generally are not fermenting the more expensive kind. Although I don't think I have access to any other kind here. They're usually doing like the, the stuff that's not as good for, for otherwise. So, mm-hmm. but Enough durian talk for today, especially if people are grossed out by it. That's what we start with. And that's just, uh, that, that's enough. But, yeah. um, but other fermentation stuff, I was, uh, part of helping some people learn about some vegetable fermentation in, in Madison through the slow food Madison 
Uh, it's part of the Zymology camp thing I think I mentioned, and it's going great so far. It's, it's, a, it's a nice concept of being able to get people together for multiple weeks in a row and show them different aspects of fermentation while at the same time being able to revisit the previous lessons or, or instructions uh, or, or classes. So, you know, we're about to do the second one this, this week, and it will be sourdough. Last week was vegetable fermentation, and so I'll see if anyone had any questions and if their ferments started bubbling. And so I like that aspect of it's, it's, it's a new concept to me of, of continuing the learning process from week to week on different subjects. Yeah, that's really cool. So it, how many weeks is it again? It's five weeks total. Okay. And so this is week two. This will be, yes, this will be week two. So we've only had one. So we haven't, we, we haven't actually experienced anything beyond like a normal workshop, but, okay. but it will be starting to feel more like that after, after this, because people will start being able to ask questions throughout the entire five weeks about any of the different things that they are learning, because they're going to be learning a lot of different aspects of vegetable, grain, dairy, and, uh, non-alcoholic beverages. So there's, there's plenty of things to absorb and it's nice that they can experiment and then come back with their questions. Yeah. That's kind of nice too, because I've taken or gone to workshops where it's only a one day workshop, two hour class or something, and you get to take something home. But once you get it home and you're, it's a new thing, you have, you've never done it before. Um, just as an example, like kimchi or sauerkraut or something, it's kind of nice to have a, a follow-up workshop. It may not have to be related to the first one, like this one, you know, you did vegetable fermentation, now you're going to do sourdough. Um, but it's nice to have, like, go to the same people and you can ask them questions like, hey, this didn't work, or I think this is okay, or what am I supposed to do now? It looks all funky and weird. Um, so that's kind of nice that it's for five weeks and um, you do have that connection and then you kind of all get connected by fermentation and have that similarity in common and you make friends and learn and all kinds of cool stuff. It is. I mean, it's like, yeah, there's email and otherwise. And I always try and emphasize to people when they take a workshop with me that it's like, send any question you have, you know, it's like really uh, follow up, let me know how it goes. And you know, it's just the reality of people get busy doing things, but when they're signed up for something, when they've, you know, invested uh, time and money into something, it's they're they're more guaranteed to uh, continue that learning process. And so I, I recommend it to, to anyone if they uh, can organize anything in their area to, to do that kind of extended workshop. It's, it's fun. It's a great way to, great way to learn. Yeah. I just like the aspect of like the follow-up where you get to ask questions because, you know, because everyone's learning. And so it's nice to have that follow-up and everyone's kind of in the same boat and you all can answer each other's questions and. I mean, that's to me, what's, what's cool about it. Um, but you, I wanted to move on to something else that I thought was so cool and interesting. Um, you had sent me a link to a video, um, about, uh, two girls. I think they were, um, maybe really bad at judging age of children. Yeah. I don't um, know how old they were, but they're young. They're young. young. They're yeah. like grade school age. Yeah, um, old enough that they uh, can understand a science experiment and um, can talk about it and talk about what was happening. And it was so cool and it was really cute. Um, but these girls, uh, I think it's their dad. Um, yes, correct. Decided to have the, these two girls make their own um, starters um, to make bread. Um, and they used... Uh, I think it was just water and flour, 
nothing else, and just let it sit on the countertop and just let the, you know, the, the yeast and the bacteria in the air um, make the sourdough starter. Yeah, I think that it was obvious reading through the blog post that did that a, a while back, but like listening to the, to the video, it is, um, it's a little hard to tell exactly, but it sounds like what, because it's kind of like a father leading his two young daughters, like asking them different questions and, and it kind of cuts uh, through that a little bit, trying to see like, what's the difference between yours. I think that one of them used uh, beer yeast and the other did a, well, they said that they both had finger yeast involved because they have yeast natively on their fingers and they are also incorporated into those, those natural starters. So, uh, which was kind of fun. I, I did like though, the, my favorite part was one of the, the girls, I believe the older one would, uh, as, as the father was prompting them about what are the differences between yours. And she just kept dipping her finger in a couple of times and, and tasting it, uh, along yeah. the way. It's like, you know, I like that, you know, it's like the, I've, I've tried my sourdough starter and I can't say it's exactly uh, tasty, but she made it look like it was. So maybe she's got better finger yeast than, than I do. Yeah. I don't know, but I, it, I thought it was just a cute idea to get, your kids involved in science and to show them that, I mean, science is kind of all around us and I'm a big component in that. I love showing my nieces and nephews how to cook um, because it's just so much is involved when it comes to cooking and doing stuff in the kitchen and it's helpful and they learn life skills doing it um, besides cooking, but like math and all sorts of stuff. So I thought this was a really cool experiment for a dad to do with his two daughters. Um, and it's cool that it's fermentation related. Well, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a given. And I just actually noticed as you're saying that I went to his actual website because the link was on scientificamerica.com, but I went to his, uh, the father's website, uh, Wayne and wax.com and, uh, he's got more photos there and everything. So I'll put that in the show notes as well because it's, it shows them kind of making their bread and they also were comparing the differences between their two different breads. So I don't know, maybe it wasn't their, their starters that had the brew, uh, brewer yeast in it. Maybe it was the breads that they incorporated, one incorporated, one didn't, and they were comparing that way. But either way, read through the whole thing and see it, look at the pictures and it's, it's kind of fun. And, and if you have kids or know any other kids, again, we're back to that whole kid thing. It's just like, just share it with the young kids. It's a great way to learn. Yeah. Yeah. But um, great video. It's really fun to watch. Kids kids kind of say weird things or not weird things, but they, you know, they just say things in a certain way that are extremely fun. They're fun to listen to, um, even if they're completely off the wall and say weird, just off the wall things. Um, uh, I, I love talking to my three-year-old niece who lives down the street from us because she's at that age now where she can she can speak full sentences and has she has her own thoughts, but um, she kind of gets a little um, off track and kind of forgets what she's talking about, and so you kind of have to you know pull her back in to the topic, but um, you know out of the blue she'll say something really really cool or just something novel or some, you know, um, observation that she has about not necessarily fermentation, but just like, Hey, that chair is purple when it really used to be a different color, but that's because my mom painted it the other day. It's like out of the blue, like what? That's weird. Um, so it's just, you got, you got to, you got to keep up with them. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not weird. You're just the weird one that doesn't understand what they're talking about. (laughs) Well, I guess weird's not the right word. It's um, 
they have such active minds that, uh, and they're not afraid to just say what's on their mind and there's sometimes no censor. And, um, so I just like that about kids. Oh yeah. It's awesome. Um, it's fun. They make life fun. And, um, and they, they come up with some inventive things sometimes. So, I mean, we can learn a lot from kids, I think. And yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see what the future generations are, are doing with, with food and otherwise when they like, you know, because I think that a lot, a lot can be, that's where I go back to like kids learning stuff, learning things like this uh, with Wayne and his daughters and, and just doing something as seemingly simple as baking bread with natural even uh, yeast and what kind of seeds are being planted to for future generations? I mean, what, what kind of thing is someone going to come back to later in life? Because sure, the inevitability is that most people or most kids, they start out doing something or most things that I did as a kid, I kind of circled back to later in life. And it wasn't as much like I stuck with it. I sometimes envied people that could kind of just, I knew what I wanted to do when I was six years old and I've done the same thing ever since. But um, I at least circle back to things. And I think that that's, uh, that's important to plant those kind of seeds, be it you know, obviously biased on this podcast towards fermentation or cooking or baking or different things like that. Like, but those kind of things make a difference, be it directly related to something that a child does in the future. Otherwise, I mean, it's like the, this other, uh, news article that I, I sent you a link for, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but it was, it's Suzanne Lee. If I've talked about her before, she's had a Ted, uh, one or two Ted talks. She's had other uh, articles in the past, but she does, kombucha and uh, fashion design and not only kombucha she's also looking at other microorganisms as ways of building clothes or organically as opposed to the the rather extensive system that we currently have of growing things like cotton and then harvesting that and then turning that weaving that into clothes and there's a large process instead we could grow things and so there's a couple photos of things like like shoes that are grown and take about four weeks to grow. It's and it, it in this, like is kind of just reminds me of like, well, what are, what are the kind of things that it could inspire children of the future? It's like, this is the kind of stuff that can be inspiring because th- yeah, this stuff is not feasible at this point, but down the road, I mean, things like this are definitely doable and change the mindset of how, like, instead of looking like what I really liked about this article uh, it was in regard to instead of, instead of looking at it more as a agricultural system of creating clothing, looking at it more in the the food industry kind of way of of you know it's growing yes but it's it's more like focused on it in in on a food industry side and I think that it's totally fascinating and of course it's kombucha so I think it's cool and I've considered doing sculptures and whatnot with that as well but did you have a chance to look at that? article yeah mm-hmm. I, i'm i'm looking at it now um but i did look at it a little earlier and um i think it's really cool um because that's what that's where science is heading headed right now it's um you know we talk about food and fermentation that side of fermentation but there's a whole other world of fermentation that i um i think is just as fascinating as um food fermentation because there's all sorts of different microbes that we can use and utilize and um, through their like DNA and kind of manipulating their DNA, we're able to over amplify certain types of byproducts that they naturally make to 
but amplify them so they make more of it to be able to use those things to make other other products. Like there's some businesses just north of um, San Diego in Carlsbad, California, where they use um, bacteria to make a precursor that's used to make plastic, um, like plastic bags. Um, and I think that there, there's another company that uses, a, I forget the precursors themselves, but then that's used to make petroleum for oil and an oil replacement. replacement. And there's BP biofuels that are here too. And um, they, you know, the name speaks for itself. They're creating different kinds of um, technology for biofuels and getting away from, um, you know, gas that goes in our cars. And um, my husband is going to a workshop tomorrow that deals with biofuels for, um, different types of transportation, um, like for helicopters and for aviation related transportation. So it's, it's so interesting how you can manipulate a living organism like that to be able to make all of these things that we need. Um, cause we're so used to having them. So, the, you know, I completely got off a little, the top, the topic of, um, this article, but I think it's so cool that she's making clothes out of, out of kombucha. Yeah. And it's, so, it's one of, I mean, using the kombucha scoby, the, the symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. And, and, and the thing that I think is, is important to remember too, is that, yeah, there, there are definitely great examples of using the bacteria and microorganisms and manipulating them. And then there's other times that we can just use the microorganisms that are already there and just figuring out how to best create an environment for them. Like, her, I don't know how much manipulation she does, but I know that she does interact and over the last 10 years has been working with different scientists because she's working on, you know, more of the, the, the art and the fashion side of things and, and usability of these, and then working with scientists to then create environments to grow her cellulose the best, to be able to create things. She, I mean, she is talking about, she's, I mean, she acknowledges that fashion is not necessary for human survival clothing to a certain extent yes but i mean she's definitely in the fashion realm but at the same time we can we can look at building clothing that is if it's possible to as going back to your manipulation type things if it's possible to manipulate chemicals or or micro microorganisms to make things anti-malarial or, or to like make anti-malarial drugs could we also create clothing that grows the anti-malarial compounds into them and then therefore creating a, a huge uh, protection for for a large group of of people throughout the world i mean things like that are just they're just building blocks upon these very simple things because there's other not quite as much microorganism fermentation but looking at some of the other work of uh i forget the artist's name but that deals with with fungi and, and using the mycelium to create uh, of reishi mushrooms to create bricks and to create sculptures and to grow different, different shapes using the mycelium, the same kind of thing that could be done with tempeh. Actually, there's another link of, uh, actually recently of, of, uh, Sander Katz just recently posted on Twitter, a picture of, he was, I, I don't know where he was at, but he was at somewhere and he received a gift of a tempeh and miso sculpture of his head, which do you see that image? I, I, I did. That's it's it's kind of funny to see because if 
I'm assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you know what Sander, you've, you've at least seen images of Sander, Sander cats. If you haven't, then just look up on Google images and you'll see exactly like, it looks very much so like him because it's so easy to replicate him because he's got his big, those chops sideburns kind of things like growing into a mustache. I don't know what the technical term is for that. Do you know? No, I don't. I would have said chops handlebar mustache. Yeah, it's all it's like it's very much so Sander Katz. He has a, like a, a very uh, it, so it definitely looks like him based on that, like the miso forms his hair and his eyebrows and his his sideburns and, and mustache. And it looks great. And the the face is actually and I don't know how 3D it goes, but at least the front of the face is was tempeh grown soybeans grown in a mold. So it's the mycelium that we're, we're forming whatever shape they were put into whatever shape the, the inoculated soybeans were put into. And so there's all these different ways that like these microorganisms or organisms can be used to, to grow things, to make new things. And, and I think that this is just evidence that there's a manipulation side of things. There's the, like taking this a step further aspect, but there's also the artists and, and just normal citizen scientists that are able to do a lot of things on their own too. And, and that's where it can start a lot of times because that's where, there's not as much needed investment either. I mean, there's not needing for, for grants or otherwise. I mean, just start experimenting, start making sculptures of Sander cats and see where it goes. It might actually lead to something more than just a really cool photo. Yeah. I think it's just a fun, it's a fun way to uh, use food and art and kind of mesh them together. I would, I I would be, if someone gave that to me, I would probably be a little surprised like, Oh, this is interesting, but I would probably take a home and be like, probably show everyone and take pictures of it. Just the same way that Sandra Katz did and, you know, Twitter it and all that kind of stuff. Um, because it's just kind of like a fun art. It's just fun art. When are we going to get you on Twitter? Um, good question. Because you definitely, still... definitely just gave off. I mean, you're going to Twitter it <laughs> as opposed to tweet it or any other. Tweet. Yeah. I don't know these terms. I'm not so great with social media. Um, because what I'm... are you going to do when someone makes you a tempeh head or, or the equivalent that would really get you excited? I mean, where are you going to share um, that? I'm going to, I'm going to Twitter it. Yes. There you go. <laughs> you're I missing out on it. these things. If you, uh, if you don't, uh, if you don't get on Twitter, that's all I'm saying. That's. That's he did. He did say that this was the best gift ever. So for someone that's been fermenting for 20 plus years and, and, and going all around the world teaching, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big compliment to whoever made that. And I think it was Brisbane was where it was at the workshop, but I don't know. It's, it is really cool. If, you should definitely go to the show notes and look at that tweet and see the image. And then Twitter it to everyone else. <laughs> yes. Retwitter it. <laughs> Um, Sorry, that was really, that's embarrassing, but that kind of shows, I just don't, it's, I don't know much about Twitter. This is why <laughs> you need to go start teaching fermentation to the youth, the future generations, and also have them at the same time instruct you on how to use Twitter. Yeah, see, it would be a symbiotic relationship. We would both be benefiting um, and it'd be a win-win situation. Creating a SCOBY in real life mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of, of I would learn macro organisms. And I would learn how to tweet. Hey, it's, it's that's see, this is, it's, it's, it's all about the children of the future. I mean, that's, what's going to save us, save us all. <laughs> um, but, oh man. But definitely check out all these things. I mean, they're, they're a lot of fun and, um, 
one other thing that I, I did notice recently was a recent post on using cheese as a starter culture for new cheese, as in making homemade cheese out of cheese that a person could even buy at the store. Um, are you very familiar with like that backslopping method of, of cheese making? Mm-hmm. Yep. I've, I've never done it that way, but I've heard of other people doing it. Okay. So this article on, on, on curd nerd and not to call it out as much as I just saw it on there recently. And it seemed like it was a little bit more against it. And you know, I'm, I'm very much so for experimentation and, um, and so like for myself, it's like, yeah, I can see the reason why someone would not want to do it if they're just trying to save money or, or avoid complications because that's where direct set starter cultures, those freeze dried starter cultures are great. I mean, they can create very reproducible, reproducible results. And, you know, the, the idea of, uh, like one of the ways that, that this person suggested for, for backslopping of sorts was to, you know, grind or to, to grind up the previous cheese and put it into just put it into new milk. And if it coagulates the milk, then you have active or starts to starts to inoculate it. And if it, if it works, then, you know, you've got good cheese, but at the same time, you don't know if other microorganisms get in there at some point or, or if there's something scary that gets in, which is they, these are all valid points to consider and, you know, sanitation being very important. The one thing that I think is missing is that if a person's going to make the cheese from a previous batch of store-bought yogurt that are not yogurt. See here, I, this is kind of where I'm, I'm leaning towards. If they're doing it with cheese, then they're going to be using most likely cheese that was made with Drexet starters to begin with. So already it's a, a culture that was meant to only really make that one batch as opposed to being able to perpetuate similar to yogurt and the direct sets Mm -hmm. yogurts that are made from the store. They're not meant to perpetuate in the the same way. They're meant to make a really good consistent batch that first time. And so like, I think that is the one missing aspect of the reason why cleanliness and uh, sanitization are are much more important. If a person is going to be backslopping in this kind of method is because they're not, using a culture that's meant to be used. Whereas before, like back in the day, before there were direct set starter cultures, that's how people were using. They were either using the whey as the inoculant or the, the chunks of the already made cheese, but they weren't direct set starter cultures. Did that, did any of that rant make sense? No, it makes sense. Um, I I was just tentatively listening. Okay. So I just, I just didn't know if like, because, so that's the one thing that like, and so that's my one challenge is like, I want to, because I know that cheeses can be made from raw milk. And so that's one way that a person could get native bacteria, non-direct set starter cultures. But otherwise, how many cheeses are there out there that are still being made in a traditional backslopping method? And that's what I would want to know. And then I would want to know, is it easy enough to backslop with those? I bet a majority of the commercial cheeses that you buy at the store are not backslop cheeses, just the same as the yogurt that you were talking about a few seconds ago. Um, Because the point of having industrialized food is to have consistent food, quality food all the time. And if you backslop it, you do have that risk of it not, you know, every time you make that cheese it's going to taste a little different than the batch before. So I bet a majority of the food or cheeses that you can buy at the store um, directs that. So then so I you... think you kind of have to like go out of the way and find those home cheese makers to find um, the cheese you're talking about with the backslopping. 
Well, see, and that's where I think of like heirloom cheese cultures, like heirloom yogurts, the kind of that newer term. I want to find some heirloom cheese cultures, ones that have been handed down throughout the generations. And I'm sure there are cheeses that have been made the same way for hundreds of years in parts of Europe. There just have to be. I mean, I, I just would assume there are, but they're probably not exported or, or otherwise. Or if they are, I don't know which ones they are. But if, if anyone knows, I would definitely like to to know because I would like to it's just that back to that whole thing even if there are home cheesemakers that are doing this backslopping method they're most likely doing something that they found kind of themselves through raw milk cheese or otherwise because like there's not that that concept of you know a cheese that's been made for hundreds of years using a similar spontaneously cultivated starter at some point and then just perpetuating that forever I mean those have kind of been lost to a certain extent much as how they have been in yogurt as well, but there's, there's still since yogurt is much more of a home kind of thing. Traditionally versus cheese has not always been a homemade thing, except for like fresher cheeses or, or shorter cheeses. I mean, when we're talking about something that's already a much more commercial product, the likelihood that there are still people doing it. The old school methods is much less, but if they are out there, I think it's important to try and backslop some of these things to try and keep these things going and of course, if a person's getting something from a different area and then they bring it to a new environment, it may not perpetuate indefinitely or it may alter, but at least that has a much better chance. And also at the same time, I know that cleanliness and sanitization are always important with cheese. But the other reason why I'm actually curious about this is because cheese and, you know, to, to a large extent, like uh, beer making as well, I mean, it's, it's since it is coming from much more of the industrial model or the commercial model of making these things, the cleanliness and sanitization required is, is much greater than it would have been throughout history just because not dealing with spontaneously cultivated things. Like, I mean, it's like with, with my sourdough, I mean, I, I know that they're different, but like with my sourdough or with heirloom starter cultures for, for yogurts, it doesn't require the same level of sanitization to keep something going. Now I'm not talking about being dirty. I'm just talking about like not needing to sterilize things and, and, and keep them that way. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's, that's my rant on, on wanting more heirloom cheese cultures. That's what I want. I was going to comment, but then I was like, I don't have much to say about that because you kind of said everything. (laughs) Well, and you're more on the, like you, you kind of come from the other, other side of it with, uh, with your, with your background. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Um, from my side, from like an industrialized food side, why they do it the way they do, they, the cheesemakers and that they use, um, a new culture every time, um, say with yogurt or just to keep things consistently the same, because if you go to one grocery store in San Diego and buy cheese, you know, a certain brand of cheese that's sold nationally, you expect it to taste the same as it would in Wisconsin at the store. So they have to keep things consistent. And um, because foods are so highly regulated, um, they have to fall in certain types of criteria um, when it comes to labeling um, and how a food can be labeled. And so that kind of forces them to be consistent and to do the same process over and over again. Um, in that, in that sense too, legally, they kind of have to, they want to name something a certain, you know, cheese versus a processed cheese product or something like that. But 
um, Which... or to call it breed. And same with like in um, European countries, a lot of European countries have very high standards for certain types of foods. Um, I know the French have, um, or maybe it's Italy, French or Italy, I can't remember which one, but they have very strict laws about cheeses. And I, I would hope that somewhere in there, that some of those regulations still hold a place for some of the more traditional fermented kind, but very well that that's been regulated out as well. And I, this is all the more reason, I think, and the reason why I like to make things ferment at home is because I don't I'm, I don't have to be regulated. I can I can chase the complexity of flavor in, in historical perspectives. I can go for all of those kind of things. And I don't have the same challenges that a commercial place does. And so to a certain extent, there are a lot of reasons to ferment at home. But for me, more than anything, it's because, well, I can I can go beyond what government regulations or, or health department regulations there may be or what control of efficiency there is necessitated. And that, that's just I mean, I just hope that at some point I find some more of these heirloom uh, cheese cultures so that I can be a. So I don't have to sterilize. It just, it's so, well, and the other interesting thing I think is that bacteriophages, I mean, with that being when a, when with more of these direct set starter cultures, there's more of an issue of phages coming in at different points. And I don't know enough about these aspects, but I I know that dairy, that's a, that's a huge thing that, you know, it's can potentially screw up a lot of things. Same with alcohol as far as I understand. But the interesting thing is that it's not an issue very much so in vegetable fermentation or specifically sauerkraut with bacteriophages, but it is an issue or, or potentially a predicted issue as more and more sauerkraut, large scale sauerkraut producers are using starter cultures as opposed to just doing it naturally, which most of the time, a lot of the time it's still done just a spontaneous fermentation because there really is no need to do otherwise. But every as with many things in industry, sometimes things just switch over, not even necessarily completely for, for great reasons, just because it's the, the salesperson was able to sell it to them. Uh, I, I know I'm over exaggerating things, but at the same time there, the, that there is more of an issue. And so like there's, there's pros and cons either way. And that's where I'm going to, I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to. But I think that it's fun to ferment at home. And I think that while I don't necessarily am that interested in, in backslopping cheeses from the store, I do think that it would be fun to start backslopping if, if I could find some heirloom starter cultures or air, or cheeses that were made traditionally from yeah. once spontaneously fermented stuff. Yeah, I think I I I think it's fun doing all sorts of different fermentations at home, but I like it more for the science behind it. And I would rather make something at home than buy it in the store um, for a lot of different reasons. But I can see why consistency is important in the food industry. Um, totally. Yeah. I, I'm so, not, not, I'm not sh- shunning the, the food industry. I, like, that's the thing is like, I think that it makes sense like why things are that way. And it's yeah. makes sense financially. I mean, these are businesses. This isn't like a romantic ideal that I'm able to somewhat hold in my head head when I'm at home. See, that's the thing. It's the romance of fermenting at home that I'm drawn to partly is one of the things. That's true. It is, it is, it is a very special relationship that you build with like your cultures. They are your little babies. And I didn't even mean to it, but this is Valentine's uh, week. And here I am talking about romance and fermentation. Yep. I noticed that I was going to comment on that, but then I decided maybe not. Um, 
But you have some, before the show, we were talking about uh, Valentine's Day and you have a few recipes that you are going to share this week. Oh yeah. And there's only one up so far, but this is, I mean, I figured might as well just go speaking of industrialization and commercialization, might as well just like fully go into this commercial holiday and get back into the swing of now that I've got the manuscript for the cookbook out, I'm back to being able to do blog posts more regularly. So yeah, I put up one for, for a, uh, like a pie crust that's pretty much turned into a toaster pastry, into a toaster pastry heart and filled with uh, yogurt or a person, if they like savory, they can put uh, feta cheese or sauerkraut also tastes really good. Yeah, I bet it's going to taste it, it. I'm going to make it for my husband later this week because um, it looks pretty easy. Um, and he loves Greek yogurt and we have so much Greek yogurt. So I'm going to try it with Greek yogurt because it's still it's not sweet, but it still has that consistent consistency of um, yogurt. If that's what it is. Yeah. If you're going to um, do like so you don't want the sweetness, right? No, I was thinking of doing it more for like um, a breakfast type thing. So maybe oh, yeah. Valentine's Day is Friday. So or maybe Saturday because um, it, sometimes it's hard to sit down and have breakfast during the weekday. But on the weekends, you know, you have lots of time. Um, so maybe I'll do it on Saturday. But yeah, I was going to do more savory. He's not a big sweet breakfast fan. So Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm I'm definitely not either. Although I do like kefir smoothies and stuff a lot of times, but like not, not like sweet, sweet. Like that's the one thing about this recipe. It is kind of sweet because I was trying to like replicate kind of that thickness of, of a regular like toaster pastry of like a commercial, like pop tart or otherwise. Like, so that's kind of what the inside is on that. But I would still say if you're going to do the Greek yogurt to try, if you have any tapioca flour or can easily get some that that would at least thicken it up some more because even Greek yogurt, even though it's thicker would still like if you strained Greek yogurt a little bit more and turned it into yogurt cheese, it'd be thick enough, but otherwise it's mm-hmm. still going to get a, like some of that way is going to separate in the heating process and, yeah. or the baking. So then it might ooze out, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. An oozing heart isn't bad, especially since if you don't dye it red, then it's not going to look all morbid. Um, <laughs> but if that tapioca like should balance out like at about that, uh, when I've done it before with, with Greek yogurt, uh, something similar to this, that tapioca, I forget, it's a it's a pretty low le- heat level that it needs the threshold to go over before it starts thickening. Mm-hmm. It's uh, lower than, say, cornstarch or, or I guess, using flour for gravies or anything as well. So, like, it's going to start to thicken it. Uh, and it doesn't take much because otherwise it can start to keep, become kind of gritty. Yeah. Well, I used to have some tapioca flour because there's some um, threads that my mom used to make all the time um, that I like to make occasionally here at home um, that require tapioca. So I might have some somewhere hidden deep in the dark pantry of mine, but um, that's a good suggestion. Um, But yeah, I think that's a fun recipe and it's very like Valentine's day inspired and it looks really easy and it doesn't take too much time to get it prepared. Cause sometimes I think you can overdo Valentine's day. It's, you should show love to the person you love every day. You don't need a special day for it, but it's kind of fun to do something a little extra. Well, that's why I go against the commercialization of it and make something, make the food like yeah. more so than, than, well, uh, I was, I was going to make some cookies. Um, I have a recipe for, um, like I'm not, I don't personally like a lot of, uh, jelly filled, um, pastries. Um, but I have a really great recipe for, uh, they're kind of like sugar cookies and you put 
jam inside of the middle of them. Um, but I was thinking if I could get it started sometime this week, just take berries um, and kind of ferment them a little bit. So just like a day or two and then use the berries themselves, kind of mash them up a little bit and use that um, instead of jam. Oh, yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. So that was an idea. Um, and I hope I hope I, I went to the store and I bought some berries. So I'm going to try to get it started tonight. And it is a baked kind of little thing. Little yeah, pastry. it's just like a it's just a cookie and you can you could probably cut it into any shape you want to. But it's like a sugar cookie. So you roll it out and you use um, cookie cutters. Um, so I was going to use some heart cookie cutters that I have and bake them that way. And then um, you can get really fancy and kind of uh, have a, a kind of like an Oreo where you have t- two cookies and then jam in the or stuffing in the middle, but you could, um, do something like that and put it in the middle. Um, so the, op- the, there's endless, endless options. Oh yeah. I haven't decided which one I'm going to do yet. Yeah. If, if for any reason your, uh, your fruit after fermenting becomes too sloppy as in doesn't, isn't like the right consistency for like a replacement for jam or whatnot, you could, if you wanted to heat it up with a little tapioca and make it a little thicker too. I just go back to tapioca flour because it's also a product of fermentation. So, you know, throw it in there, make everything fermented. Yeah, no. And that's a good suggestion. Cause I've only, I've never used tapioca flour in that way. I've used cornstarch to thicken sauces up or jams and fruit, um, compotes and stuff like that, but never tapioca. So that would be, um, a good addition, something new to try. Yeah, I mean, it's it, tapioca flour is one of those weird things where sometimes it works really well and other times it just changes the consistency or like it doesn't really have a whole lot of f- flavor that it adds at a small enough dose, but sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But hey, either way, it's a product byproduct of cassava fermentation, cassava fermentation. So then it's, you know, it's another fermented ingredient that a person can add into there so that it's their ferment. They can share it with their fermented Valentine. Yeah. And then, of course, you can always have wine or beer. Oh, I don't know if I sent you a link for it or not. Speaking of wine, uh, which is the only reason why this uh, link kind of came up in this, uh, but the one about the mafia from modernfarmer.com. Oh, I saw that. That's kind of cool. Like that. I mean, it's just fascinating, I guess, if nothing else, like taking land from the mafia and then giving it to farmers. And it's been something that's been going on for about 10 years now. And one of the things that they're growing are are wine. They're also growing... uh, wheat and and plenty of other things, but it's using confiscated mafia land and then, uh, and it's being farmed. And it just seems like a a great way to kind of, of reinvigorate these areas that have, you know, I mean, because some of the land that they've, they've taken were from some of the, the the bloodiest uh, mafia bosses there were read the article and you can see more of like the people that were involved but it was also something interesting where people weren't necessarily that always that willing the local villagers were not necessarily that willing to farm or thresh the wheat or different aspects of it but it's kind of cool that people like push through and did it and it's just nice that the healing aspects of food it's just it's wonderful yeah i think it's really cool just the idea of it and um and um the picture of the guy looks um who's cutting he's cutting some um um, grapevines, Grape- grapevines. There you go. <laughs> um, he looks very happy. 
So just yes. wanted to throw that out there. Like he's having the time of his life. Um, but it's a really interesting way to take some, something that was very negative and put a positive spin on it and get more people involved in agriculture. Yeah, it did. It did make me think, though. I was like, wow. I mean, I, again, I don't have any perspective on what it would be like to grow up in these regions that I mean, this was this was also happening at the same time that there was a oh, I can't think of what the other activist group is. The Adia, Adio Piso, probably mispronouncing that, but it's a movement that was not that would refuse the businesses, Sicilian businesses that would refuse to pay protection money to the mafia. And if you don't know protection money, then watch a few mob movies and it'll start to make more sense for even United States mafia. But uh, it's just, it's, I can't imagine what it would have been like growing up in some of these regions, but it's just, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I might've been one of those people that would be a little uncomfortable at first too. It's like, well, sure. Why would they, anyone really want to mess with us or harm us? But at the same time, it's like, well, it's, it was taken from the mafia. So do we really want to grow stuff on it? Yeah. I mean, I can see there's being a little bit of hesitation just because the mafia is so interconnected and you don't really know who belongs to what group or who's a spy or that's what I kind of see from mafia movies um, or TV shows and hearing about it. So you're, I can see how people could be a little hesitant to think like, Ooh, is this a trap that I'm falling into or, um, or not? Yeah. Especially when but, like any information they have about the mafia isn't as much from movies as it is from reality. Um, having, I mean, obviously if they live right next to, to mafia land, then they were probably, a little bit more closely familiar with mafia happenings as people in the United States were in larger cities uh, many years ago as well. So yeah, it's like, it's not, I, it's, it's a warm and fuzzy article, I promise, but it may not really sound like it with all the, the mentioning of blood and, and death. <laughs> and the mafia yeah. and mafia payoffs and stuff like that. Yeah. Happy Valentine's day, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Did that leave you speechless? Yeah, you left me speechless. I don't really know what to say now. Well, everyone can get out there, make something, make a heart. I- I'm going to put up, if it's not up by the time that people see this uh, or listen to this, then it will be up this week too, uh, inspired by the the kimchi crepes that we saw on Ideas on Food. I'm also going to put up a recipe on on making kimchi Kimchi flavored crepes in the shapes of hearts, because not only are they red, but they're hearts. And so they're very Valentine's-y like, so you can definitely do that. And then at the same time, if a person wants to go the sweet route in the morning, they can add some cultured whipped cream in between the layers and make like a stack. Make a, Just make a beautiful presentation. Whether your Valentine likes sweet things or not, just, just make it look really extravagant and, and beautiful and it'll be good. Because it's kimchi, so I mean, a little bit of sweet, but that won't be that noticeable. I don't know. But anyway, that will be up there as well. Get out there, make some things. Do you have anything else? No. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to everyone, and we will, uh, well, until next time. Oh, before that, in case you want the show notes, the uh, firmup.com slash podcast slash 52, and then you can find us on Twitter at firmup or Facebook at firmup. And until next time, firm up.